So I'm sure things will just go just fine today. All right, let's open up in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to, to look at, at the history of your church and the history of your people. We just pray that you be glorified by our interactions here today, both in Sunday school and in the service. We just give all this over to you and thank you again. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. If I can, there we go. All right, so we're doing, obviously, the Reformation. We're kicking it through the Reformation. Very exciting. Last time we started part one, this time we're doing part two. Kind of wanted to hopefully have gotten to, to part two before we stopped last time, but that's all right. We're talking about Calvinists and Mennonites, which theoretically could have been two different sections since we talked about Calvin at length last time and Mennonites this time, but they kind of bleed into each other a little bit in an in interesting way, so I wanted to make sure that we connected them. But we're just going to do a smidgy bit of review just to kind of, to, to kind of connect. Oh, come on. We're going to do a smidgy bit of review. Just remember. The Reformation is, is, is kind of finding itself coalescing into three basic camps. There's Lutheranism. Yay, Luther! Luther's bizarre, but yeah, yeah, Christie's. Wave the little Lutheran flag for me. There you go. <laughs> Anabaptism. I'll wave the little Anabaptist flag. Okay, yeah, Nikki can do that. That's fine. Calvinism. Ready? Calvinist flag. Everybody's happy with this. Oh! I wanted to make sure I reminded myself. After my last class session, um, somebody said I, I, I darn near preached Calvinism. They're like, oh man, you just, it's like you were saying, this is, this is truth, this is what makes sense. And then somebody else said, you mollycoddled the Arminians. Which means... You gave people enough knowledge to hang themselves with. Yeah, okay, sure. Well, I was going to say, sweet spot. You know, if, 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 if some people think that I, 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 I preached Calvinism and other people thought I, I was too nice to the Arminians, I must have done that kind of neutral ground-ish. So, because I'm not trying to turn anybody into a Calvinist or an Arminian in this. So if you walked away going, oh man, he's just banging one drum. No, trying to bang all drums. Ish. I'll pick on some people that are flaming me wrong. You guys are no fun. All right, anyway. So, technically. Isn't he? Let's go back to him, shall we? Because... <laughs> Arguably the best looking theologian <laughs> ever. Okay. You know what? I even wrote a note and I was going to put it on Facebook and I was like, oh, I forgot. Pastor Gavin, Teddy. Again, grew my beard out for one dumb joke. Went home that afternoon. I wasn't home an hour before I had trimmed my beard back. So, anyway, technically, a lot of people will say, no, 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 there's four. And, and I suppose you could argue that there's four different camps. Because of the English Reformation that's going on with Henry the Henry the Eighth, but I would argue at this point it's just Henry the Eighth being a jerk. Um, the actual reformed parts of this are going to come in later, but right now this is Henry the Eighth going. Well, I didn't get to do it. I want to do so. I'm making my own church. Um, it doesn't really count as a reformation of anything. But if you want to see it this way, you can think of the spectrum as Lutherans were not Catholic anymore. Church of England, well, we're not Roman Catholic anymore. We're essentially Catholic. We're just Catholic that has divorced itself from Rome. Calvinists, we need some structure here, some theological structure. Anabaptists, no. Pitch it all, start from Scripture. Now, you may find any of these particularly more interesting than others. Uh, some people will say, well, I want to make sure that we, we hang on to tradition. There's a reason why tradition is there. I like the structure, the, the 
ecclesiological structure. I like the worship uh, service structure that has tradition and and uh, uh, centuries of background. Fine. I'm not going to pick on any of those things. A lot of people are drawn to like high Lutheranism for, for that reason. There are other people that find themselves drawn to saying, I, I really like the theological structure. I like that sense of systematic theology. I, 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 it makes logical sense to me. Drawn to Calvinism. There are people that, and, and increasingly so, um, you know, Christianity Today talking about how there's a lot of people being drawn to Calvinism, kind of neo-Calvinist. A, a lot of young uh, college students and, and uh, recent seminary uh, students who are drawn to Calvinism specifically because it, it has this sense of theological structure to it. At a time where we're dealing with a lot of postmodern or even post-postmodern, though that's a, the most ridiculous way of saying it, post-postmodern uh, thought, the, what comes after you've had time of postmodernism, uh, and people then reacting to that, going, well, I think logic is a good thing. And being drawn back to this because of a sense of logic. And other people who are specifically drawn to Anabaptism because they say, what I really want is to make sure that we chuck anything that doesn't specifically come from Scripture and start with that. Now, there's a lot more to each of these areas than what I've just said. There's, there's, uh, there are Lutheran churches that aren't even remotely like high Lutheran churches. There's a lot more to Calvinism than just structural systematic theology. There's a lot more to Anabaptism than just, hey, we're going to start with Scripture. Good and bad with all of these. I'm just saying broad strokes, there are people who are drawn to various parts of this spectrum for various reasons. So, anyway, just bear with me for a second. Let's get back up on speed as to where we were. 1533. So the first third of, of the 16th century, Jean Calvin has been converted, trained as a theologian and as a lawyer, and tried to build this logical structure to, to systematic theology. Same year that he was converted, Jakob Hutter uh, moved his congregation from Tyrolia up to Moravia in Austria, because uh, there's a lot more tolerance for people thinking differently in, in Austria at this particular time. And the Hutterites, preached nonviolence, communal living. They looked at the end of chapter 2 of Acts and said, there, that's what we should be striving for. Let's start with that. Let's aim for that. That's what a church should be like. So, good. Yay. Early Anabaptists kind of doing their own thing, whatever. 1536, Calvin publishes the Institutes of Christian Religion. He's only been a Christian for three years. But he's been studying theology his whole life. Studied to be a priest when he was a kid. Uh, and, he's, and he's putting things together in intelligent ways. So he's still a young guy, still a very young Christian, but he, he, he takes things from Augustine, things from Anselm, things from all these different people, and, and just like any good lawyer, takes all these legal precedents, these theological precedents, and puts them together into something that is a generally um, logical structure. Uh, a friend of mine is teaching a Sunday school class at my, mom, at, uh, my mom's church, mom and dad, she's taking the class. Um, my mom's church, and she just gave me his handout packet, which was like, Kadoom. and I look into it, and the funny thing is, I actually recognized several of the websites that he cut and pasted from, even down to like how it's formatted on the page. But it's intelligently put together. But it's very much a lawyer's way of doing it, because he's a lawyer. Actually, he's a judge now. But uh, but he's just like, okay, this goes together from here, this goes together here, this goes, this is logical, and jump. that's my case. Very much the same way that John Calvin did. Um, so, uh, 
it lays out this internally consistent view of the Trinity of sin of, of the atonement. Not everybody agreed, so we go back to the beautiful man. Uh, <laughs> the the Dutch uh, a, a, a group of Dutch reformers called the Remonstrants uh, disagreed with Calvin, and they were led by a guy named Jacob Arminius. And Arminius and and the oh you know what something I am glad I see this is why I put myself little notes here to remind myself of this. Um, Last time, I, I kind of emphasized the internal consistency of, of Calvinism, but, which is not to say that they didn't use scripture to support their case. And I kind of focused on the fact that the Arminians were going, but there are problems from scripture with this, which doesn't mean that they weren't being systematic in their theology, per se. But for the sake of clarity, I, 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 I just put together some scriptures that suggest Calvinism, some scriptures that, that suggest Arminianism. So take one of these, knock yourselves out. At a future point, go read your Bible. Anyway, the funny thing is, is you'll see a couple of scriptures that both of them use. Both of them like to look at it and go, this obviously proves my case. John 3.16, both of them look at it and go, obviously proves my point. I love it. It's just kind of fun. Anyway, um, anybody want to guess as to why John 3.16 is for both of them? Yes, and because it fits well on placards that you can take to the ballpark with you. But um, <laughs> why would a Calvinist see John 3.16 and say, this obviously proves my point? Okay, then. Calvinism. How is that a Calvinist verse? Is it? Because they all are. <laughs> no, but I mean, seriously, look, 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 look. And anybody else can jump in and help him. How would... Whosoever believes in him, because Christ died for those who would believe in him, is that mm -hmm. kind of That's one of it. That's part of it. That, uh, that whoever God has ordained to believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life, right? I mean, boom, you, you, you don't lose that. You, it's, it's right there. If you believe in him, you have everlasting life. Yeah. Obviously, you just got uh, you just got up. You got you got uh, you got the the unconditional predestination and, and the perseverance of the saints. Anybody want to give an Armenian take on John three sixteen? Whoever believes in him. And by the way, the, this doesn't prove anything against Calvinism, but but in the Greek, it's whoever continues to believe in him. That's the force of that verb. Whoever continues to believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so the good Arminian goes right. So if you cease to believe in him, this verse proves that you've lost your everlasting life. Both sides look at this verse and go, obviously. God Arminian. What? No, it's obviously God. No, it's Arminian. I love it. It's fun to talk to. Anyway. Okay, anyway, um, so, and speaking against Calvinists, the Remonstrants, who later became known as Arminians, because they followed Arminius, but the Remonstrants broke Calvinism down into five easily remembered bits that even the Calvinists later went, no, that's good, we like that, you know, and so everybody seems to agree this is more or less a good way of, of remembering some of the, some of, because there's more to Calvinism than just these five points, but some of the key, um, uh, uniquenesses of, of Calvinism. What are some of the new things that they bring in? Total depravity, uh, people 
Uh, total privacy, unconditional predestination, limited atonement, irresistible grace, first grants of the saints. <laughs> Look to your notes last time. Go online. The notes are there. Enjoy yourselves. All right. So, in the introduction to his uh, to his Christian Institutes of Christian Religion, which was dedicated to King Francis the First of France, uh, Calvinism said, or Calvin said, um, I, I'm writing this because you've got all these. Catholics who are so focused on outward forms, on the pomps and circumstances of, of what it looks like on the outside, a church has to be something you can point to. You have to be able to say, ah, this guy clearly dresses differently. This guy, this church building is clearly different looking. There's a clear understanding. Church is an outward thing. And we want to say, no, 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 no. The, the church is an invisible thing. The church gets together sometimes, and they sometimes get together in buildings, but that's not the church. The church is all these invisible threads between people who are saved and who are part of the body of Christ that are going about their daily lives. Counteract that with the Anabaptists who are saying anything goes. They're, they're chucking everything to the wind, and it just seems chaotic. So the Catholics are so focused on form and structure, they've missed the point of what the church is, and the Anabaptists are so chaotic, they've missed the point of what a church is. That's essentially where he's going with some of this stuff. The same year that he publishes his Institutes of the Christian Religion, Meadow Simons leaves the priesthood to become an Anabaptist. See, because this is, this is why I'm fitting them together. Meadow Simons is an interesting character. He's born and raised in Friesland, up here, and so he's got a nice Germanic background which was occupied, but never entirely conquered, by the Landsknecht of the Holy Roman Empire. Remember these guys from last time? Extremely colorfully dressed, really, really, really tough guys. It's like uh, the Holy Roman Empire decided they wanted their version of the really, really tough Swiss Guard, and so they got these guys. These guys that, when they went head-to-head -head with the really, really tough Swiss Guard, actually beat the really, really tough Swiss Guard. So these, these, are, these are the Delta Force of their age dressed like clowns. <laughs> they, were just, they, were, they dressed like dandies because they, they liked it and because they wanted everybody to see them coming a mile away and go, I'm very, very frightened because that's, that's psycho. So anyway, these guys who were extremely tough and extremely intense were in Friesland for decades. That's not a nice place to grow up. I mean, it's, it's like growing up in Sarajevo in the latter part of the 20th century or in... Uh, well, Mogadishu in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the 21st century. He's not a nice place. So everybody's killing everybody all over the place where Menno is growing up. Very intense existence. Grows up in constant war, constant strife, constant occupation by, by other armies and things. It's not even like the occupation like we've got in Iraq. It's really mean, very tough, very kick you as they walk past you kind of occupation. So, yeah. Uh, you said Friesland in Germany. This isn't uh, Friesland in the Netherlands. Uh, no, it isn't Germany. It's Germanic. It, okay. but, yeah, it's, is a part of the it is part of the Netherlands. But he grew up speaking German. Good point. Okay, he's it, 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 pretty sure it wasn't. I don't. In fact, he wrote in German. I assumed he grew up speaking German, from what they were saying, because like even his early journals and everything were in German. I don't know. Okay. I only ask because I'm priest. 
Dude, you're like a Mennonite by blood. Woo! <laughs> yes! Maybe he's Wow. <laughs> ooh, ooh, I don't like that. Now let's, let's go to the happy place. Let's see some Mennonite. I think I'm going to start dressing like See now the obnoxious guy and he goes, Star. So, no, no, you dress very well. You dress very well. Alright, um Where am I even going with this? Oh. Okay, so grows up a good Catholic priest. Um, but because he's a good Catholic priest, he decides not to read the Bible. Um, because they were encouraged not to read the Bible at this time. Um, so he's like, you know, it, it could really mess you up if you read the Bible because the church is very clear that the church existed before the Bible. In fact, this was the, one of the arguments we've heard before when they're interacting with Luther. Which came first, the church or the New Testament? Which came first? Which was established first, the church or the New Testament? Obviously the church. Therefore, anything in the New Testament needs to be read through the eyes of church tradition. Put it in the proper church tradition. Now, you could argue that if the New Testament is the Word of God, as some Anabaptists argue, the New Testament is the Word of God. The Word of God existed at the beginning. And the beginning was the Word. The Word was existing before the church. That got them in trouble. But um, but even that, this whole post hoc ergo propter hoc, after something, therefore because of this, after the church, therefore the church gets to decide. And any church traditions that came up after the, the New Testament was written still are church traditions. And since the church is older than the New Testament, you have to read the New Testament in light of even newer traditions that came out of an older end. gets silly. Um, but this is why he avoided reading the Bible. In fact, years later he said, Such a stupid preacher was I for nearly two years. Two years I preached God's word without ever cracking open God's word because I didn't want to do anything screwy. What am I thinking? So, um, he, but he always felt really bad. He felt guilty all the time with things. He didn't understand how things worked. He's like, wait a minute. Why does the church preach that the bread and wine are actually flesh and blood? They look like bread and wine. They taste like bread and wine. Why do we say it's actually flesh and blood? Why does the church hate Anabaptists? I mean, they don't like the, the, the Calvinists. They don't like the Lutherans. But they hate Anabaptists. Just kill them, maim them, torture them, do all sorts of nasty things. Why do they hate these guys more than anybody? And why, if, if I'm a good priest and I'm trying to be a good guy, why do I feel so guilty about getting drunk and gambling and all the other stuff that all these other priests do all the time? Everybody says it's okay. And yet I feel somehow guilty about doing this stuff. Why? So, he actually cracked open a Bible, got his hands on a Bible, read it, and got very upset. He's like, wait a minute. The Bible doesn't say diddly about transubstantiation. It never talks about clearly this obviously physically changes in this way at this point because you said these words over and again. It's like, no, and we're killing people over this? Even if I wanted to argue that this is true, I have no clear building from Scripture to do this with. How could you torture and kill people for this? Wait a minute. It never, ever, ever mentions ever any infant baptism ever? And we're killing and torturing people over this? Again, maybe it's completely fine to do infant baptism. 
But since the Bible never, ever lists any of them and ever tells us to do it, how can we murder people who don't do infant baptism? This bothers me. It also bothers me, doesn't shock me, the Bible says that all the stuff that I've been feeling guilty about is naughty to do. Yeah, that's what it, I kind of thought that I was going to find that in there. What did bother him is that none of his other fellow priests had a problem with it. And when he said, wait a minute, the Bible says that this is naughty for us to be doing. My fellow priests all went, that's why I don't read that thing. He's like, this is, no, we're doing this wrong. We're doing this backwards. Now, part of why he was even focused on Anabaptists is, a couple years before, Anabaptists under a guy named Jan had forcibly overtaken the city of Münster. They conquered it, and they said, this is Anabaptist territory. Everybody else gets territory. We want territory. This is our little kingdom. Because remember, when we think of Anabaptists, we think of Mennonites or Amish or things, we tend to think nonviolent. That's Some of them are. The Hutterites were. Jan's group, not so much. The Münsterites, all about fighting. They're all about fighting. This is great. Jan sets himself up as a king, sets up a commune, says we're going to follow Anabaptist beliefs. They may or may not have practiced polygamy. We don't know exactly. Because the people who recorded what these guys did were their enemies. And their enemies didn't understand this whole communal living. We share everything. They're like, oh, they're sharing families. They're all living together. Oh, oh it's horrible. Dogs and cats living together. Horrible. You just go, um, I don't think you understand the concept of what communal living means. It means we all share our goods, we all eat together. It doesn't mean we share our wives and families and things. It just means we all help raise each other's kids. So it's hard enough. We honestly don't know. But John was a bit of a nut, so it's possible. We don't really know. But all of this would seem to prove uh, Calvin's point that a little bit of systematic theology would go a long way. I mean, you're, you're, you're running around shooting people and taking their stuff and everything because you want to live like biblical Christians and share all your stuff. You, you mean the stuff that you stole from everybody else? Yeah. You're going to share it. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. Way to take the moral high ground there. Really needs some systematic theology here. The year before uh, Menno left the priesthood, his brother Peter, who was a follower of, of the Munsterites, was killed when the Munsterites were trying to expand their territory. And so... He's like, I, I, I've lost a, a brother to what seems like a cult to me. Um, but I'm very disappointed with the Catholic Church that I'm a priest in. Everything is kind of up in the air, and it's really unpleasant. That same year, Münster was retaken by Prince Bishop Franz, which, and maybe this is the Anabaptist in me. I don't think so. I just think it's probably not a good idea to be both the prince of a region and its bishop. Um... That you hold all the secular power. Pardon me. Yeah, you hold all the secular power and all the religious power in a given area. Yes, with the king of England. I mean, ish. Yeah. At least, he, at least the king of England had enough. He had the Archbishop of Canterbury. He's got to interact with him. Well, this guy's pretty much petty tin god of his own area. But they tortured all of Jan, uh, Jan and all of his guys to death. In fact, they hung their corpses in cages, which are still on display if you go to Münster and see the cages where they hung their bodies. Because you got to sit there and go, naughty, 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 bad. Don't ever do this. Never stand against me. I'm the Prince Bishop. Don't mess with me. I can do anything I want. So all this is to say, by the time you get to 1536, Menno's like, I'm sick of the whole mess of it. This is just horrible. I grew up with horror. I see horror. My brother died in this. This is horrible. Um, 
upended right before this, King uh, Emperor Carlos V had won a decisive victory in Tunis against the Ottoman Turks. Remember the green, green group that's growing and growing and growing to the to the right end of the map. So Carlos the Fifth had just won this huge victory, which is yay. But that's why his rival, King Francis, remember the guy who Calvin uh, uh, dedicated his institutes to. That's why King Francis, who was a rival of of the emperor. Um, started supporting Suleiman of the Turks because he's rivals to the Holy Roman Emperor. You go, but yeah, but you go, well, but but France, Christian France, is standing against the Christian Holy Roman Emperor with the Muslim who is calling himself the Sword of Islam. I'm going to kill all the Christians. You're climbing in bed with that guy. To which Francis says, yeah, but he's way the heck over there. We're France. You'd have to be England or Spain to be farther away from that. By the time that Suleiman's group forces would ever get to France, I'll be dead. So it's way over there. By the way, if you say, well, he's just a nut. Isn't that exactly the same argument that people had in World War II? Well, Hitler's doing naughty things to Poland. Well, yeah, but that's Poland. I mean, we're France. Hitler's never going to come to France. We're England. He'd have to fly planes to get over to England. No, no, no. Everything's fine. Let him do whatever he wants to Poland. He'll get it out of his system. Well, that was, isn't that America's theory way back at the beginning of everything, which was, well, they're across the ocean, so they're never going to come over here. Right. Which is not the mentality we had at World War II. Oh, yeah, it was. Yeah. It's not the mentality we have now. Then why are we sending our boys way over there? To, yeah, yeah. Pretty much everybody's mentality. As long as it's happening way over there, it's a genocide. Well, yeah, if it were happening in Mexico, we'd have to do something about it. But it's a genocide way over there in Eastern Europe. Not the Eastern Europeans deal with it. They put all sorts of J's and things in their words that we don't understand anyway. We couldn't... No, seriously, I mean, people do... I don't even understand how to pronounce those words. Just let those people handle it. So if you're growing up in this mentality, in this time period, we still go... So the, the, the Christian king of France is fighting with the Christian Holy Roman Emperor. They're, they're, he's uh, developing a relationship with the Turks who are like the black handlebar mustache, literally black handlebar mustache kind of people, bad guys. You just go, yeah, this is, you can see where Menno and people like him are just like, this is a horrible point in history. I just, I can't handle this. So they, oh, they, they established the Franco-Ottoman Empire Alliance which stood for like 250 years, where France and, and the Ottomans were buddies against everybody else for years. We even went to war against the Germans and things. But Simon's broke down. He's like, you know what, Lord, anything that you want, I'm so sick of, of the world and all of its messed upness. Break me completely. Rebuild me however you want me to rebuild. I, I give it all over to you. Anything. Whatever, whatever you want from me, take it. Absolute, absolute brokenness. As he summed up later, he said, I prayed to God with sighs and tears that he would give to me a sorrowing sinner, the gift of his grace. Create within me a clean heart, and graciously, through the merits of the crimson blood of Christ, he would graciously forgive my unclean walk and unprofitable life. It's like, I just, everything about me, I just want to give it over and say, it's all crud. Rebuild. Later on, he said, realize true evangelical faith is of such a nature that it cannot lie dormant but manifests itself in all righteousness and works in love. It dies into flesh and blood, it destroys all forbidden lusts and desires, cordially seeks, serves, and fears God, 
clothes the naked, feeds the hungry, consoles the afflicted, shelters the miserable, aids and consoles all the oppressed, returns good for evil, serves those that injure it, prays for those that persecute it, teaches, admonishes, and reproves with the word of the Lord, seeks that which is lost, binds up that which is wounded, heals that which is diseased, and saves that which is sound. That's his synopsis of what religion should be. There's a reason why I tend to look at Menno Simons and go, white hat. You know, because when I look at this, what he's doing is, if you realize how much of this is echoing scripture, what he's doing is like, can we go back to what this is supposed to be like? Now, you can do that as a Lutheran. You can do that as a Calvinist. You can do that as a Catholic. You don't have to become a Mennonite to do that. But taking this kind of mindset was a unique mindset of the day, where people are like, oh, but you got to have these structures, or you got to have this particular doctrine. Can I? He's like, what do you do with this? What should your life look like? Well, all the people that he's describing that you're supposed to help and do things for, those are the very people that they would torture and kill because they weren't believing exactly what they did, right? Mm -hmm. So, so he, what's interesting is he's looking around saying, I see, when I look around the world, I see a lot of oppressors and I see a lot of victims. When I look at the world, that's primarily what I'm seeing, because, let's be honest, there are a lot of oppressors and victims. He's like, those victims need somebody to come alongside and love them. And those oppressors need somebody to come alongside and help them. Not to oppress, but to be not that person anymore. And you just go, what an unusual perspective. At a time when people are like, well, okay, our kingdoms, remember in Switzerland, our kingdoms need to be all Catholic. Well, our kingdoms need to be all Zwinglian. You know, oh, we need to do this. We need to protect ourselves from this. We need to be good. We need to go hide over here. We need to, terms say, look for victims, help them. Look for oppressors, love them. Pray for all these people. Utterly bizarre way of looking at things. All of which ended up leading him to Anabaptism. He's like, as I read scripture, I, I, I had a, a preconceived notion against this. I really didn't like Anabaptists in large part because I thought Peter was a nut. My brother Peter. I think you know, the, the, the Munsterites were nuts. But as I'm reading this, I'm like, everything I'm reading in scripture tends to lead toward this. Now, without saying... Well, because, of course, Anabaptism is obviously true one. Why might it be that as he reads through Scripture, what he's looking at tends to look more like the Anabaptists than any of the other groups around at the moment? Without assuming that Anabaptists is correct. I'm not trying to go there. But why does it make logical sense you go, well, actually, probably it's going to look more like Anabaptism than a lot of the others? Because the others weren't paying attention to Scripture. Not always, right. I mean, some of them were being more about outward structure or about the structure of the worship services, or what have you. Or even about taking that scripture and being very logical in our systematic theology of how we put it together, let me quote Augustine, let me quote Anselm. But to specifically go back and say, well, what scripture saying? You know, well, it's technically what the Anabaptists are doing. Sometimes they're, they're doing bad interpretations of it because they're not being systematic about it. But yes, these are the guys who are actually quoting scripture. Yeah. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. So it does make sense that he's like, as I go back and look at this, these are the people that make the most sense to me. But, he's like, I do agree that they're kind of chaotic. A lot of these Anabaptists are just running around going, oh, I, I, found a, I found a chunk of Mark, and it says different things, so I'm going to run with my chunk of Mark and say, this is now my church. So, no, 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 not proof texting. So he's like, no, no, no. What we need to do is actually get past the Munsterite kind of excesses and this chaos and institute some systematic order to this. We've got to, to, to be, I'm, I'm an educated priest. I've got to figure out how to help these people do this better. 
So, he's like, I I'm going to build systematic theology. I'm going to write systematic theology texts from an Anabaptist standpoint. I want a biblical theology, not just a couple of verses, not even just lifestyle. I want a biblical theology that is consistent. Nonviolence, communal sharing, holy living. We're going to live this stuff out like we actually believe it. This is important. In fact, they had such a reputation for holy living that they kept getting in trouble for other people with other people for being works-oriented. So they'd be like, no drunkenness. Don't be sleeping around. We're not going to be gambling money away. People are like, well, then you're works-oriented. No, no, no. I'm just saying that those are bad things, and if they're bad things, we shouldn't be doing them. But the very same sorts of priests who, when he was younger, said, well, then chuck the Bible. You shouldn't be reading that thing in the first place. Those are the same mentalities that are going, well, but... But we've been saved not because of not because of anything we've done, but because we are we were saved since before the beginning of time. Therefore, gamble, drink, whatever. That's not what makes you saved in the first place. Or the Armenians doing a lot. No, 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 bad, bad, bad. But you're not saved by your works. Therefore, you can do all this kind of stuff. You know, people not getting that what they're trying to do is actually live out what they actually believe. But Simon's actually said, he has a very famous prayer amongst Anabaptists. But he, but he, he prays, uh, Through the merits of your blood, we receive the remission of our sins according to the riches of your grace. Through this blood on the cross, you reconciled all upon the earth and in heaven above. Therefore, dear Lord, I confess that I have or know no remedy for my sins, no works nor merits, neither baptism nor the Lord's Supper, although all sincere Christians use these as a sign of your word and hold them in respect but the precious blood of your beloved Son alone, which is bestowed upon me by you and has graciously redeemed me, a poor sinner, through mere grace and love from my former walk. Nothing else. Even the good stuff. Good stuff, like, like baptism and the Lord's Supper. None of that saves me. Now, I look at this prayer and I just go, wipe a single tear. This is beautiful. But realize, there's a lot of people at the time that would hear this and just go, heretic, kill him. You're saying... You're saying everybody was reconciled to the blood of Christ? So you're, you're chucking the L in tulip. You just want tweet. No. Burn in hell. Wait, you're saying you're not saved? Baptism and the Lord's Supper do nothing to, to, to sanctify you so that you're saved? The Catholic Church wants to kill you now. Multiple people reading this just go, nope, you're wrong. Different people from different perspectives. So, he argued that you couldn't really call yourself a genuine Christian unless you genuinely desire to live out your Christianity. You actually have to make a personal choice to actually do something with this. Which is interesting because that means that while the Calvinists, the Twinglians, the Lutherans are all trying to get secular leaders to come on their side and support them and be part of the process, the Mennonites are actually pulling away from institutions. Because they're like, all that formal outside stuff that everybody is clinging to, at best, it does nothing. At worst, people go, right, that's my religion. And if you say, yeah, they're all messed up then, I'm guilty of this too, how many of you have ever told anybody your church sits on the corner of Knoxville and War Memorial? Oh, I'll meet you over at the church. Yeah. This is just a box that the church meets in. And yet... I call it a church, just like you guys call it a church. I try not to. I try very hard not to, and I still slip with that. I totally get this idea of going anything, anything, 
outside of what's going on between you and the Lord personally, any of this outward form can begin to diminish your understanding of what it means to be having a personal relationship with God. Now, do you chuck all that? Do you, do you say, no church buildings? Some sects do. There are some groups of Christians that say, having a church building is itself bad. Um, having a church pastor is itself bad. Dressing nicer for church as if you have to be somehow different, doing it only on a Sunday because there's something different about that day. Every form that you do is bad because it is inherently pulling you away from God. Now again, ironically, I would say, so you're all about forms. Anything that you do like this, you start falling into a new extremism. You just go, you focus on forms too much. It's evil to use instruments. It's evil to, you know, then you're focusing on forms. So you have to find that happy medium. You have to be able to say, it's okay that we meet in a building. It's okay that we have a cross up on our, uh, up on our wall. There are some groups, brethren, would hate that cross. They'd say it's idolatrous. It's okay that we do the Lord's Supper. Not to be saved, like, say, Catholic churches would do. But we're not going to avoid it like, say, the Salvation Army does. It's like, it's, it's okay to do this as a remembrance of what's come before. That's at least what we're trying to do here. But Menno's like, now we've got to pull away from everything that, that institutionalizes this. Anything that says we're connecting ourselves with the state, we're connecting ourselves with the prince, we're having secular authorities that are telling us what we're doing, we're going to have some sort of higher church hierarchy, whatever. But even though I would say, okay, now you're taking this, you may be taking this a couple steps too far, you can see where he's coming from with this, where even, even Calvin says the Catholic, the Catholic Church is all about these outward forms. We need to get away from that. And, and then I was like, okay, let's get completely away from it. Anyway, so the Mennonite communities did not want to be polluted by this outward, essentially corrupted world. And so they turned inward and wanted to be consciously dependent on one another and independent of anything outside of that community. Make a certain monological sense? Don't ask it. I'm not asking if you agree. Does it make a certain monological sense? Given the world they live in, that you might go, let's find our own little enclave where we, we, we move away from all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Pardon me? Kind of like the village. Keep that in mind in a second. Um, this had some interesting ripple effects uh, as things go on. First off, and we're still feeling this, first off, the Mennonite technology basically stopped its progress in the mid-19th century. When you think about Mennonites, you think about the Amish, you tend to think about them being kind of 19th century-ish. But it's not because they're, they're Luddites. It's not because they're against technology. It's because they don't want to be dependent on any outward source. They don't want to be dependent on the state for their electricity. They don't want to have to go somewhere and find gasoline. They want to say, how can we do this within our community with no dependence on an outward state? I don't want to climb in bed with a state that I might disagree with. Do you see any reason why Menno might find that uncomfortable, given where he's coming out of? So politics making strange bedfellows? So, theologically speaking, Mennonite technology peaked at the moment that you could do most efficiently accomplish the most work without being connected to or dependent on the outward world. And that's right before the Industrial Revolution kicked in, which is why they tend to look like they're stepped out of the 19th century. Right? 
I say that because a lot of times people are like, well, Mennonites, you know, the Amish, they don't like technology. Like, oh, they love it. They're absolutely fine with you riding, you know, you driving them in your truck. They're fine with that. Yeah. And when I was in uh, the Arthur area, um, I was asking about um, their family, and one of their, they were posting about one of their sons who invented some new cabinet making machine. And they were just so proud of this new technology that uh, he could sell it for like $20,000. It was such an elaborate machine. And it runs on pneumatics and stuff like that, um, just not electricity. But um, he's really proud of the new technology. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because they're not anti-technology. They're anti-everybody but them. Because everybody but them is messed up, right? So, I mean, you... I just want you to make sure you understand they're not Luddites. They're not afraid of technology. They love it. They just don't like any technology that requires that they have anything to do with Illinois or anything like that. Pardon me? I don't want <laughs> Don't take that bad. I know. I know. She's mean. Okay. Secondly, the inward community-based focus kind of altered their ecclesiology, how they do church. For instance, um, they all make use of excommunication. Catholic Church, Lutherans, Calvinists, Anabaptists, etc. But they do it in very different ways for very different reasons. Calvin said, when you look at excommunication, it's to protect the church from dangerous, sinful doctrine. There are people out there who are messed up. He cites 2 Peter 3.16, Philippians 1.15, etc. He's talking about all these different teachers that are out there teaching false doctrine. And you need to protect the church from false doctrine. And so he cites 1 Corinthians 5.11 saying, those infections need to be removed before they infect everybody. So, if, if excommunication is to protect the church from false doctrine, who should do the excommunication? If it's to protect the church from false doctrine. Protectors of doctrine. Protectors of doctrine. Should be the theological leaders, right? And since what you're trying to do is, is protect the church from chaos, then secular leaders who are there to, to bring about law and order, should support the excommunication. You actually need to bring the prince in on this. If we're excommunicating Sarah, I need to contact the mayor of Peoria and say she's no longer allowed in our church. She's no longer allowed in any church. You need to make sure that she's no longer... You need to have police there to make sure that she doesn't do this. And if she tries to show up, we need to be able to call you and you need to say, you are breaking the peace by coming in something where you can excommunicate. So... It's the leaders of the church and the leaders of the community coming together to do the excommunication. Yeah? That actually sounds kind of helpful. Uh-huh. I know of situations where someone was kicked out of a church uh, from a leadership position and then immediately went to another church where they were accepted into leadership, mm -hmm. having nothing, and the people there knowing absolutely nothing about what he did over at the other place. Oh, yeah. Um, when I was in Ohio... Uh, the churches had this great system where um, you could contact what amounted to a central clearinghouse and understand where somebody was coming from with something, especially like if somebody fleeced a church. If there was a con artist, you could call and say, uh, Floyd Gumbo has come and has asked this. And it was it sounded kind of odd, and they'll go, oh, Floyd, yeah, yeah. And, and everybody shared information like that. Um, I've tried that I tried that for several years here in Peoria, and everybody's like, no, we can't share that kind of information. That's a... Uh, conflict of interest or it's a, a, a privacy issue and I can understand that but, but yeah it was very helpful to be able to call and go does anybody know this guy yes we do so little database 
then doesn't that put you in influence with the state and with the politics? Oh, absolutely. The Calvinists yeah. were fine with that. Oh, oh yeah. Lutherans and Calvinists are absolutely fine with that. The Catholics are having a little trouble with that because they're chafing with central leadership at the moment, but they conceptually like the idea. Simons said, no, wait a minute. Excommunication is to protect the morality of the community. And he even says, okay, Calvin specifically cites 1 Corinthians 5, which is about moral problems, not false teaching. False teaching, you correct. Moral problems... That's what you have to communicate from. And if it's a moral issue, then it should be the whole community that comes together to excommunicate the person. This is not a leadership down issue. This is a, all of us get together and say, we're not eating with Floyd anymore. Which is why in Anabaptist churches, a lot of times, instead of having excommunication, you'll have something that they refer to as shunning. Where you say, no, it's not a matter of We've decided you don't get to take communion anymore. Which is the way the Anabaptists would phrase this. You don't get to take communion anymore. No, no. It's we're not eating with you. We're not breaking bread with you. You're not part of our fellowship. And since everything is about the community and keeping the community pure, for us to not break bread with you on any level is horrific. So he's like, no, this is why you do excommunication. Can you see why this is a fundamentally different form of excommunication than most of the other churches were doing? But this way the community continues to progress toward moral perfection. Because we get the morality right and get immoral people out. Which is an interesting concept because Meadows preaching that if you have enough time and enough dedication, both the individual and the community can move toward moral perfection. You're not sinful anymore because you got rid of all the immoral influences. Anything immoral, you got rid of. Women dressing in un, un, unappropriate ways, no. We've gotten rid of that. Our women all dress in appropriate ways. They all cover their ankles, as God intended. And thus, we don't lust, right? So, where did the line get drawn between helping a brother or sister out while they're struggling with sin versus kick them out because we don't care anymore? All depends on the community. Because, I mean, I don't want to pick on, on Mennonites too much. There are some communities that are extremely good about this. If you're struggling, the whole community will come alongside you and work with you, which might sound very unpleasant to us, because we all tend to like to sweep our sins under the rug and not think about it, but to know, if you were in one of these communities, to know that everybody, everybody will come alongside and say, I love you, I know what you've done, and I love you. You don't have to hide anything, I'm coming alongside of you, and I will help you. You know, if you can get past that initial, I'd rather just sweep this under the rug, that's an amazing feeling. Having said that, you have other communities that are like, Floyd, no, it's Mennonite Ezekiel, um, <laughs> Zedekiah, you have done something inappropriate, therefore we hate you. We don't say it like that. We say, I, I never, ever, ever want to see your ugly face again because I love you enough to want you to change into a decent person for us. By yourself. By yourself. And if you were to repent of your sin? Uh, actually, many of them would bring you back. If you actually are genuinely repentant, it's like, yeah, absolutely. Now, there's a... Obviously, that's a problem where you go, well, what exactly, where is that bold black line? But also, what is it if you bring your sinfulness with you? <laughs> okay, this, I've actually talked to Mennonites who are like, dude, yeah, we, I lost, I just lost after a woman's ankles. I lost after her calf. When she steps up on a step and I can see the, the curve of the calf, I go, woohoo! Like, so you brought worldliness in with you. Yes, like an Amish girl. But you brought, and, what did, what 
that you specifically referred to earlier. We're going to create a community where we're going to leave all the violence and bad stuff outside the community. You know, really? Because I'm pretty sure watching this movie, you brought all the violence and bad stuff in with you into your community. The fact that that is never really addressed in the movie torques me off. One of the reasons why I hate this movie. But, uh, well, and they use violence to keep everyone in the Exactly! The whole time going, we're doing this to prevent violence. You but this is the problem, is you're bringing it in with you. Worldliness is not all those naughty world people out in the world. Worldliness is something, it's a fleshliness, a carnality we take with us and bring in with us. The fact that you've made women cover up does not mean you don't lust anymore. Because you're still a lustful person. You just lust after different things. You need to deal with that. So there are problems with this concept still. Okay. Um, as Menno Simon's age, he became crippled. In fact, he's usually pictured with a cane or a crutch. Um, and he, he frequently signed his works, Menno the Lame. Um, so he's hobbling around for most of the rest of his life. But he continued to travel as much as he could, in large part because he was trying to share the gospel, but also because he's constantly on the run. He spends his entire life on the run because everybody wants to kill him. The Catholics want to kill him. The Lutherans want to kill him. The, men, uh, the Calvinists want to kill him. Uh, the state authorities want to kill him. Everyone wants to kill him. It's, it, it's, it's, uh, I was talking to somebody the other day. It kind of reminds me of Santa Claus is coming to You go, wait. This guy is telling people, you ought to love one another. You ought to like, help one another. When you see somebody getting kicked, find their wounds. When you see somebody kicking somebody, pray for that person. Don't kick them back. And you all go, hunt him down and kill him. He's an outlaw giving toys to children. And it's like, yeah, it's the weirdest outlaw, you know, to be an outlaw for being like this. But he's an outlaw and he's having to run all the time. But he's also preaching, emphasizing this, this biblical Christianity with things. By the time he finally dies in 1561, he actually gave a systematic theology to Anabaptism, emphasized the importance of actually reading their Bibles and, and thinking through theology, but then also ended up elevating the movement to roughly the same category of prominence as Lutheranism and Calvinism. When he started off as an Anabaptist, they were just a bunch of, of unruly mutts, and nobody liked them, and everybody thought they were nuts. By the time he died, everybody was like, well, you can be a Lutheran, you can be a Calvinist, you can be an Anabaptist. Still, people thought they were, some people thought they were nuts. But it became a fully-fledged legit movement within Christianity. That's kind of a big thing. Um, 1536, since we're still stuck on 1536. That's the same year that William Tyndale and Jacob Hutter were burned at the stake for their various heresies. Tyndale for the horrible heresy of translating scripture into English, and Hutter for preaching anabaptism and nonviolence. So they got caught. It's just that he didn't. He didn't get caught. That was somebody else, yeah. But uh, uh, Tyndale was strangled and then, and then burned. But still, that's why, eh, if I gotta do it this way, that's why technically you see he's getting strangled here in the picture, and then he's getting burned. But, but yes, the, the, both these guys burned to the stake for, for such horrible heresies as this. That same year, remember Erasmus? A guy, Erasmus, died in Basel from dysentery. Not a nice way to go. But it's very telling that when he died, he refused to call for a priest and didn't want last rites read over. Never left the Catholic Church, but categorically refused to allow them to read last rites because he he said, at the, even on his deathbed, he's like, no, what really matters is your relationship with God, not whether some guy comes and says something over you, sincerely or insincere. I don't care if some guy I've never met comes and says something Latin over my body and has nothing to do with my relationship with God. 
So I don't want to confuse or muddy the issue by letting them do it. Final words were, dear God, with a smile. So, it's an interesting point in history. How would you synopsize this point in history? What's going on? How would you, if, if you, somebody said, oh, where are you at in your church history class? And you said, uh, about the early, mid-1500s, 15, how would you describe what's going on here? Some similarities to when the church first started. There, they had a period of time where it was mostly one church and it just kind of got worse and worse. Um, and, and then a lot of people are waking up and it's kind of starting over. And so the, there's, again, a lot of people just trying to figure it out, getting into the Bible for the first time and trying to figure out what, what does this really mean. And they don't all come to the same conclusions, but there's a lot of people genuinely trying to figure it out. Which is... Exactly. Which is kind of sad that it's 1,500 years after this. You just go, really? It, 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 you've gotten out of the habit of doing this. You thought you understood it enough that you're having to go back and go, okay, so wait a minute. What happened with the atonement? How did that work exactly? Didn't we figure that out like a 1,000 years ago? Yeah, and then we got so used to having figured it out that nobody remembers how that works anymore. It's the E. Platonista syndrome. Okay, how so? Because you've got the Anabaptists and the Anabaptists, the Calvin, like, like that's, those are all different, basically, modifications that are coming out of, as a, well, they're coming out as a result of the Catholic Church, but it's kind of like, um, I was thinking of it like the pendulum swinging, and so, you know, everybody's going in response to everybody else, and so the pendulum just keeps going back and forth to response. Um, and the reason I ask to clarify is because um, officially in the Catholic Church, when they look at this timeline, they say everything was fine until now, and everybody just left and did their own crazy, crazy, crazy world stuff. And, and so this is bad. This is a time of horrible division and bad things. Um, a lot of Protestants tend to look back at this and say, ah, oh, the top, yay, October 31st, it's, it's Reformation Day, yay, everything got better. And it's a little bit of both, really, when you think about it. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not the kind of, not exactly the kind of factionalism that we tend to get today where everybody's, because I didn't like that color of carpet that you chose, therefore I'm starting my own church. So there's, there's, there's parts of that kind of pettiness going on. But a lot of the main things we're talking about with Luther or Calvin or Menno are, are, are some sizable, wait, how do we do church concepts? And so even though they're doing different factions, they're doing different denominations, it's because they genuinely are trying to go back, like Michael was saying, they're genuinely trying to go back and say, we have to figure out how we're supposed to do this. Because I'm pretty sure there's got to be a supposed to in here somehow. And also, like, um, it's not like the Catholic Church was the only church. At the very beginning, yeah, yeah. you had factions then, too, between the Eastern and Western Church. But you also had the Ethiopian Church, and you started to have churches that grew up in India and other places mm -hmm. scattered around and it was it was mostly like because travel was harder, communication was harder, like based on locality. So in Ethiopia they had these books mm -hmm. and they might not have been the same and they might have had some Ethiopic copies of things that they didn't have in the West. And so their church grew up like this. And I mean even today we're 
unreached places. Depends on what missionaries come there. Yep. Um, and there's there's very few places where it just independently grows up and tries to figure out. Algeria's kind of been like that uh, because they've been so isolated from the rest of the world um, and not a lot of missionaries. But there's um, yeah, it grew up a little different in each different place, including you know the east and the west. Besides where they interacted and the schism, but just as they grew up, they were different. And even within those areas, like we've seen in Europe, even if you say, oh, the Roman Catholic Church is dominant, right, they still have the Albigensians, they still have the Waldensians, they still have had multiple different factions over the years doing different things. So it, it isn't, and, I, and hopefully you guys remember this, is it, it isn't like Luther came along and everything changed. It's like, more like the printing press came along and everything changed. Um, but there had always been different factions going, wait, have you actually read this stuff? I don't think we're doing this right. So, uh, the, the it, 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 there are different large chunks, overarching church with different schisms. There are different regional things, and even within those regions, there are schisms. What are you going to say to you? Well, I was just saying, this is very disturbing for this Reformation because I've not had this, uh, you know, this much detail before and so much violence. I just had no idea. But it's just amazing, too, that you see God doesn't leave this church alone. And just when you're thinking somebody's got to stand up to go against this, then someone comes up. And, you know, this Menno, uh, you know, or the fellow before him that was killed and then his wife was. Oh, yeah. With, you know, I just thought, well, who can, where, I mean, that is not how Christ would act. How could the church possibly go on? And if I was an infidel, I would not, I mean, I would want to be a Muslim rather than be a church like this. Oh, there you go. That's what got him killed. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, you, you can see why, you know, yeah. where the church was going. But then you see what God does raise up different prophets in different places, even though they may not get the, you know, whole, you know, you, it's a pendulum. Yep. But, but it's very difficult to hear all of this. It's yeah. very disturbing. And, and there, and there, are very few people have stark white hats or, or yeah. you know, jet black hats with a, or a mustache and tying people to the rails. You know, it just doesn't work like that most of the time in history. So you got people like Melanchthon, who's a class act and trying to make Lutheranism a good thing. You've got Erasmus, who's a class act and trying to make uh, Catholic, uh, the Catholic Church a healthier place. You've got Calvin, who I think was it's generally a class act, and yet oversaw the execution and torture of people. You, you have Menno Simons, who I think is a class act, and yet is saying, if we just hide from the rest of the world, we can find perfection. You just go, you all have, you're trying to do the right things, and you're trying to figure out how this works. If you can interact with one another, and that's what we'll see as time goes on, the more that they can interact with one another and cross-pollinate, you tend to get more stable, more healthy churches, and yet you also get diluted, messed up theology too. So it's just, but in general, the church is designed, strangely enough, to be iron sharpening iron. That we come at things from different angles, we we interact with one another, and my understanding is things you you know Terry might say that's a little different than I understood, because I was thinking about it like this. And I'll go, good point. That's probably more like, even a simple thing like Randy going, wait, when you spoke in Dutch, I'm like, well, everything was German. Now I'm going to have to totally go back and look at that. I'm going to have to figure out, well, wait, was he, would he have been speaking Dutch back then, or would he not? Helping one another to be iron sharpening iron is how this is designed. Yeah, well, let's finish with this. There's a, there's a book called The Final Quest, and some may disagree with its basis or whatever it claims to be prophetic, but it kind of approaches... The church, church history, the same way that what you're saying that it um, 
that with each new movement, something that was lost is getting brought back. There's always some kind of revival coming as these, you know, and as we get to the Wesleys and so forth, there's these different things that get brought back, bringing the church as a whole closer, because usually there's some kind of reaction or response from the opposing side, and um, God, I mean, Jesus prayed that the church be one, and, you know, God says he's perfecting his bride, and so even though it can be really ugly at times, and things get really messed up, um, yes, God keeps raising up prophets and raising up people, and there's pendulum swings, though, so this thing gets completely lost in the last revival, and now someone's bringing it back, mm -hmm. and it's working its way up there. We're not there yet. Yep. And, and either it might just be the way I'm teaching a history class, and so I'm betraying all my biases, or you can see that the way I understand history, why I, I, I'm rarely afraid of things getting messy. Uh, people like to compartmentalize church, compartmentalize worship, compartmentalize God in, in all sorts of ways. And though I appreciate logic and I appreciate um, order, I don't like chaos, messy doesn't scare me. Because I'm like, messy means we're bringing different things to the table and putting it all together. Um, if you if you can't handle making a mess, you're going to be an absolute horrible cook. Because you cannot cook without making a little bit of a mess. But it's not that you're creating chaos. It's that you're creating a little bit of a mess to bring order and something that's delicious and edible. And, and that's the idea behind saying, yeah, different people are bringing different things to the table, and it can be a little messy. Chaos, not good. Messiness, I don't mind that, because it usually means things are going to be better than they were before. A little worse sometimes, maybe. Hopefully a little bit better. I know you need to get going, but the thing, too, about it is that I keep, every time you keep talking about something new, I compare it to today. Because I keep hearing people like on the radio, different things that how the church is sleeping, you know, how horrible the church is doing in their job now, nobody's speaking up, nobody's defending. And I can, you know, when you see back then, like you said, all the messy people getting killed and, you know, martyrs usually bring things more. It's just, it's weird to compare today with all that. So I keep coming back to I keep coming back to something we said the very first day of the very first class of this particular Sunday school course. There's nothing new under the sun. It would just keep having a lot of the same things. You rearrange the pieces, but it keeps coming up in, in, in different ways. So, um, yep, uh, we can talk about that more, but I, I want to finish up.